All right, so we are going to be in the book of Nahum, and before we get too far in, I want us to uh, review the setting of Nahum. So the first verse is an oracle concerning Nineveh. So this is a book about Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And to understand this book, we've got to remember where we are in the story. Nahum has something to say to you and me today, but first we need to go back in time and hear what it had to say to the nation of Judah, its first audience before we get to us. So try to imagine with me, close your eyes if you need to, as best you can, what it was like to live in Nahum's world. It is the 6th century BC, an age of kings and iron weapons. You are one of God's chosen people living in the promised land. The golden age of King David and Solomon has faded into the past. The nation of Israel has been divided for over 300 years. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And Israel's gone, taken into captivity by Assyria. You live in the land of Judah, a land of mountains and valleys. It's not green like Frederick, Maryland, but beautiful greenery is concentrated around rivers and sources of water. Your life is filled with manual labor, walking, cooking, gardening, caring for animals. Life is slow, and seasons rule your life. Spring and summer bring food, but it's also the time of war and raiding. Winters are feared by all. No one goes to war in winter. The surrounding nations and kingdoms have all been your enemies one time or another. These nations are your peers, fighting year after year over the valleys and mountains in the territory of the King's Highway, the coveted trade route connecting Africa and the Mesopotamian Valley. To the southwest on the King's Highway is Egypt, your past, the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, stories you've known and celebrated since childhood at every Passover. To the northeast along the King's Highway is Assyria, the future you fear. Assyria and Egypt are not your peers. They are vast empires that swallow up other kingdoms. And they are at war, and you are caught in the middle. For 3,000 years, Egypt has been the dominant world empire. But for the last 100 years, Assyria has been on the rise, and Egypt is declining. Assyria's rise to power has marked a new age of war. Professional soldiers... Iron weaponry, horses and chariots, siege technology, all of this Assyria combined into a war machine unlike any other, marked by one thing, ruthless brutality. The Assyrians celebrated war. Their walls are engraved with battle scenes. Their literature is full of their detailed cruelty. Their epitaphs and monuments are filled with pride. One such king labels himself Tiglath-Pileser, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, king of Sumer, king of Akkad, king of the four corners of the world, the king who from the rising sun to the setting therefore has scattered all his foes to the wind and has maintained his sway, who subdues the people of the upper and lower lands, who ousts their rulers and installs his own officials. As servants of the most high God, these claims boil your blood, but the threat weighs heavy on you and the surrounding nations. 
And as kingdoms of the north are steadily obliterated by Assyria year to year, every nation along the king's highway wonders, are we next? And finally, the dreaded news comes. Thebes, the capital of Egypt, has fallen. Isaiah 26, the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled to be delivered from Assyria. And how shall we escape? With Egypt gone, there's nothing between Assyria and world domination. This is the world of Nahum. A world of uncertainty, fear, and vulnerability. Assyria was no doubt in the news frequently, and you can imagine the headlines. Assyria conquers Hamath and Arpad. Sepharvaim next. Assyria begins its campaign against Judah's fortified cities, the noose tightens around Jerusalem. Assyria marches into Thebes, Cush and Egypt in exile, an endless line of captives. The book of Nahum is God's news about Assyria. And how refreshing in the midst of great fear and clamoring headlines that the first eight verses are entirely about God. So let's read. Nahum 1 verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means, by no means, acquit the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Karma wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Isn't God good to turn our attention toward him? We are so often caught up in the news of our day, Assyria, Assyria, Assyria. And God pulls our eyes off the fears and says, look at me, look at me. Who is God according to Nahum? Avenging, wrathful, angry, powerful, just, and good. We don't typically gravitate toward these words when we describe God, but we need them. Look at what these words mean. Avenging. To avenge is to inflict harm on behalf of someone wronged. We need that. When we look around for justice, when we see evil, we long for an avenger, someone to put a stop to evil. Wrath is extreme, vengeful anger. God's anger is never unwarranted. It is always controlled, and it is always on the behalf of of someone wronged. 
We need this kind of God. Without him, real justice is a myth. Verse 3 came as a surprise to me. Without looking at your Bible, finish this sentence for me. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, right? Numbers, Psalms, Joel, Jonah all follow this pattern. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But instead, we have here, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Why has the pattern changed? God hasn't changed. Why has the pattern changed? Because the book of Jonah has already happened. Y'all remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was given a message from this city, Nineveh. God said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for its evil has come up before me. So after a while, and a shipwreck and some swallowed by a fish later, Jonah calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And to everyone's surprise, the people believe God, and God relented of the disaster. But this displeased Jonah. And he prayed to the Lord and said, isn't this what I said when I was in my country? That's why I ran away. I knew you were a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. One of the most precious truths, and Jonah says it as if it's a terrible thing. And God did relent, and there was a real repentance. But that repentance lasted perhaps 10 to 30 years. Jesus commended the Ninevites for their repentance, so I'd like to believe it lasted for a generation, but that's all. And they went back to their violent ways with the rise of Tiglath-Pileser in about 745 B.C. And so this time when you hear the Lord is slow to anger, slowness is not for the repentance of Nineveh. It's an encouragement to Israel. It's like God saying, I know It's been long. I know you feel like they've gotten away with evil. I won't let them get away. The time is coming soon. I will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. His jealousy for his people and for his glory activate his vengeance against any who would oppose it. And that is good news for anyone in this room who has been wronged. Already you can hear the message of Nahum. Be patient. Trust him. Your avenger is coming. Let's move into verses 4 to 8. The Assyrians would scoff at the gods of other nations. They would say things like this, Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand? Who is the Lord that he should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? In other words, who's this angry God and why should I fear him? The Assyrians had their own God, Enlil, the God of wind, air, earth, and storms. Let's listen to God's description of himself. And fair warning, this is poetry. So, when you hear poetry, let the images flash in your mind and feel their effect. These are evocative, feeling words. Let the words dance in your head Feel it with your imagination. I'll try to help. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Remember the feel of wind tugging at you. 
Remember the hard and fast raindrops of a summer storm. Remember the quickening of your heartbeat when the thunder breaks before you realize that lightning had flashed. He is the master of wind and air and storms. He walks the sky. He's not bound by it, though. They are just the dust of his feet. The hurricane and storms herald his arrival like a chariot, but he is not bound by water. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Karma wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The ocean and the sea are the same in Hebrew. Remember the riptide. Remember the wave pushing you under. Remember the torrent of uncontrolled water. Suddenly all the water is gone in one word. The ocean is gone, just like the crossing of the Red Sea, just like the crossing of the Jordan. Bashan is a mountain range known now as the Golan Heights. In Psalm 68:15, it's called the mountain of God. And in that psalm, the mountain is jealous that God chose another mountain instead of him. 9,000 feet over sea level, snow-capped, glorious, and proud. Remember the vertigo as you look down over the edge. Remember the air thinning as you climb higher. Remember the pounding elevation headaches. Remember the snow at the top melting into rivers and waterfalls, life to grasses, forest, animals. And in that stronghold of life, one word, one rebuke, and it is all dead. Remember the forest fires on the mountaintops and the vast stretches of dead trees. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Remember the first earthquake you felt when earth did what it should not, when gravity could no longer be trusted. Feel the heat of fire, and now try to merge those if you can. Most of us have not seen a volcano, but I imagine this is the image we're supposed to get. The earth heaving and buckling the way your lungs do after a hard run. These are the footsteps of God, and he is coming. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken in pieces by him. Literally, who can stand? The tempest has caused us to run for cover, but the trees have withered, so we look for the caves. But now the caves and the rocks are breaking and bursting out fire, and where can we go? How can we stand? Wind, water, earth, fire, they're all at his command, under his control, aspects of his fierce power and beauty. And now connect verses 1 to 3 with 4 to 6. The vengeance and wrath of Yahweh can be executed in a thousand ways using the full array of nature's powers. As I was pondering this, I was remembering back about 20 years when the following events all happened in a six-year span. 2010, an Iceland volcano erupted enough ash that 95,000 flights were canceled in just a few days. Half the world's air traffic closed for a week, resulting in loss of billions of euros. 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the south coastline, causing over 1,000 deaths and $100 billion of damage. And it literally reshaped the topography of the American coastline all the way up to Delaware. 2010, a 7.0 earthquake caused a struck Haiti, killing over 100,000 people. 
and destroying twice that many structures. 2004, earthquake caused a tsunami with massive waves that striked dozens of countries in all directions, over 200,000 dead and one and a half million refugees with no place to live. This kind of power is in God's hands. He can use it any time he wishes. Take your eyes off Assyria, off your trouble, and put them on God. Why? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He knows you. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Kind of wanted to stop at verse 7, but the two go right in hand in hand. There's no middle ground. You can't remain neutral with God. His arrival on earth will be so catastrophic that there will only be two options. You take refuge in him or you be swept away. But take courage. He is good. He's a stronghold. He has been for me, and I know he's been for many of you. You don't want to be his enemy. He pursues his enemies into darkness. Have you ever heard a more chilling picture of God? He is the hunter. He is the wolf that's stalking the darkness. If you're running from God, that's a terrifying thought. But if you're one of God's sheep, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what is more comforting knowing that there's one who walks beside you, unafraid of the dark, a defender, an avenger on your behalf? Nahum is a glorious and hopeful book. It's meant to bring encouragement to God's people. So I hope you have a picture of God now in your head, something altogether more terrifying and wonderful than you normally think. And now he will get specific. So here's a roadmap of where I'm going. We just covered point one, the God behind the news. And now we will hear the news for God's people in verses 9 to 16, the news for Nineveh in chapter 2, and the news for the nations in chapter 3. I apologize for the length of the sermon. I feel like it should have been two, but they gave me 45 minutes. What am I going to do? That's right. That's right. Amen. In this section, God will speak to Judah and Assyria back and forth, and it's easy to get lost, and it would be easier to separate them, but God didn't separate them because these promises to Assyria and to Judah are intertwined. They weave together God's vengeance with his kindness towards his people. So after declaring his glory and power in verses 1 to 8, Nahum turns to Assyria and says, what do you plot against the Lord? And then to Judah, he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. They're like entangled thorns that can be tossed into the fire all at once. They're like drunkards as they drink. They can't defend themselves. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. They will be gone in a moment. And then back to Assyria, he says, From you came one who plotted evil, a worthless counselor. And back to Judah, thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength, and many, they're going to be cut down. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke off of you and will burst your bonds apart. And then back to Assyria. Ah, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated 
from the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. And finally, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who publishes peace, who brings good news. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. I hope you see the connection between God's vengeance and his love for his people. He asks, what do you plot against the Lord to Assyria? That's interesting to me. I don't think any of the Assyrian generals were thinking, all right, let's make a plan against Yahweh. I don't think that's what's going on. This, what this shows us is God identifying with his people. When you want to do my people harm, God says to them, you're plotting against me. You've started a war with me. The complete end of Assyria marks the end of trouble for Judah. The strength of Assyria cut down means an end to Judah's affliction. The destruction of Assyria's idol worship means the worthless will not pass through the land anymore. His jealousy for his glory activates his vengeance, and his vengeance here means peace for Judah. And so that's why he burst into song. Behold, look on the mountains. The messengers are on their way. They're bringing news of peace. Assyria is destroyed. That's a quote from Isaiah 52. Why is he quoting Isaiah well, let me just read you a little portion of it, and hopefully you'll see it. Awake, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, holy city, for no more shall come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. We just heard that. Shake off the dust and arise, loose the bonds from your neck. We just heard that too. For thus says the Lord, you were sold into nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. My people went down at to Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I have here, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and all day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name, and in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. They sing together for joy, for eye to eye, they see what? The return of the Lord to Zion. That's what we've been singing about. I loved your song, Zach. Thank you. Nothing could have prepared us more than that worship. It was just awesome. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, like someone getting ready to fight and pulling back their sleeve or their cloak. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What's the good news of Nahum that he brought in from Isaiah? Freedom, comfort, protection, restoration, globally witnessed salvation. Line to line, line to line. So when Nahum says, 
Behold, upon the mountains, he's saying, look, the messenger is already on his way. The news has already been written. Assyria will be no more. I've seen it. And what is the response Judah should have? In Isaiah, the response is rejoicing. In Nahum, the response is faithfulness. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. If the worthless are already cut off, what's this call to faithfulness? Why do we got to keep feasts and fulfill vows? Because the destruction of Assyria is still a long way off. Assyria at full strength after conquering Egypt means that their decline is probably not for another 50 years before Nineveh is actually destroyed. That's a lifetime away. Most of the people that read Nahum won't see it, but it will surely happen, and it did. You stay faithful. I think that's the message for Judah. Hold fast. Your avenger is coming. The rest of the book is addressed to Nineveh, but the book of Nahum is for God's people. Nineveh is not going to hear it. Chapter 2, we will hear of the destruction of Nineveh from the Assyrian perspective. Chapter 3, we'll hear of the destruction of Nineveh from the world's perspective. Chapters 2 and 3, I warn you, they're very poetic. They're very full of fast-paced images. It's like a movie. And just like when you watch a movie, you're going to see things at such a rapid pace that you might only have time to process later, and that's okay. I encourage you to do so. We're going to go fast. I'll try to explain it, but here we go. Nahum 2, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunders have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of the scatterer's mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets, to and fro. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall to catch up. The siege towers set up. The river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry, but... None turns back. Plunder the silver and plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate and ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguishes in the loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went? where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. And I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. In chapter 1, 
the messengers of Judah bring peace. Chapter 2, the messengers of Nineveh are silenced. The news for Nineveh is summarized in verse 13. God himself is against them. The God we spoke about in verses 1 to 8, with great power, who will not acquit the guilty. Verse 2 of chapter 2 reminds us why God is doing this. This is in response to a serious plundering of Israel, his people. And so he causes the scatterer to come and scatter Assyria. The scatterer is not Judah. If we keep reading on to Habakkuk, we'll find out the scatterer is the Chaldeans of Babylon. Their army is organized and confident. They have chariots, verse 3 to 5, siege weapons, spears made of the best wood. They use siege tactics to break the river gates. The Kosa River flows through Nineveh. Nineveh is a great city. Three miles, was it three days journey across just to get across it? And the Kosa River flows through the middle of it. And an invading army would have dammed this river up and at a key moment released it sending a torrent of water towards the river gates, destroying part of the wall and the adjacent palace, which is next to the river gate on the west side. So in verse 6, when it says the palace melts away, it's literally melting away, floating away as chunks of it are pulled into the river. Nineveh is being emptied. Look at verse 8. Its buildings, its people, its treasure like a pool being drained. The officers are trying to get their soldiers in line. Halt, they cry. But the soldiers have already fled in panic. Verses 11 to 12 poetically summarize Nineveh's demise. Nineveh's like a lion's den. Its officers are like young lions, eager to tear, eager to destroy. They plunder. What they've stored is like torn flesh, because the Assyrians burned and stole and destroyed their way to get these riches. And God sees it for what it is. This is torn flesh in a lion's cave. The Lord sees it all in the destruction of Nineveh and asks sarcastically and poetically, where's the lion's den now? So that's the news for Nineveh. The Lord is against you. Now, the news for the nations in chapter 3, the siege continues, but now we're going to see it from the perspective of the nations looking in. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt, make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who is going to grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea and water her wall? 
Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street by you, Assyria. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All of your fortresses are like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The siege returns in full force with images of battle all around This time, God highlights Assyria's impact on the nations. Their treasures are filled with plunder, but God sees the blood and the lies they use to get that plunder. In verse 4, he calls Nineveh a prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms. Assyria would hire themselves out, would promise protection and military power in exchange for wealth and subjection. But they were devious. They did not honor their deals. King Ahaz of Assyria once hired Assyria. King Ahaz of Israel once hired Assyria. The Bible tells us that the king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Similarly, King Hezekiah, surrounded by the king of Assyria, asked for conditions of peace. Assyria demanded 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. To meet this demand, Hezekiah emptied the treasury of God and stripped the gold from the temple walls. But Assyria did not hold their end of the bargain, but kept the gold and pressed the attack. Assyria was a betrayer of nations, selling off whole countries to whoever could pay them more. They were treacherous. And so in verse 5, like a woman who has lost her jewelry and her coverings and her protection, Nineveh has lost its wealth, its protection, and its military might. And in shame, all the earth sees the city of Nineveh laid bare and wasted. And so it's no surprise in verse 7 that none of the nations pity her. Verse 8, the nations remember Egypt. They remember the cruelty of Assyria to them, the violence done to their infants. They remembered honored men being treated like trophies to be gambled over. And so the Lord promises vengeance of equal measure. The fortresses are devoured, 
Just like the Assyrians had devoured the nations and torn flesh to feed their young lions, they will be devoured. Verse 13, the professional soldiers have fled and the untrained women are left to defend the city. In verse 14, God taunts Assyria, prepare for war, strengthen yourself, strengthen your defenses. It's not going to matter because I am against you. Like the locusts devour crops and leave nothing behind, so Assyria will be devoured. It used to be the other way around. Assyria used to be the one spreading like locusts over the earth, devouring. Verse 16 says, Their merchants were numerous like the stars of heavens. But the merchants, seeing what's going to happen, back away when the destruction comes. And even Assyria's mightiest princes and warriors, they're waiting on the fence, figuratively, to see what will become of Nineveh. And when the sun rises and Nineveh falls, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Silence has fallen over the hills and in the city of Nineveh. God calls to them, your shepherds and nobles are asleep. Are they asleep? No, they're dead. There's no easing your hurt, Assyria. Your wound is mortal. Nineveh has been emptied, devoured, and silenced. And what is the world's response to this? Finally! Yes! Finally! Cheering, clapping, And the tombstone of Assyria is carved in these final words, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? God cares about the nations, about what they do to one another. And he cares what they do to his people. So point four, the news for the nations is rejoice, for Assyria is no more. Now, Let's try to take it all together. What does this mean for us? Certainly there's the call to hold fast and waiting for the day of vengeance. But some of you may have noticed a few loose ends. Um, I had a slight panic attack when I was listening to this. Chapter 1, verse 3. He will by no means clear the guilty. No means? Does the cross count? What about the cross? Am I guilty and I will never be cleared? That thought was in my head. Then another loose end. We'll get there. Chapter 1, verse 15. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. Really? Never? What about Babylon in 597 BC? What about the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans? Doesn't stop. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Nahum is quoting Isaiah. Nahum looks back at the promise made in Isaiah and sees the future Assyrian defeat as a shadow of a future promise. One day all God's enemies will be destroyed when all the earth sees the salvation of the Lord. Here right now with Assyria is like a down payment. It's like a shadow of the things to come. 
But then Paul quotes this passage, and that throws me into a whole other loop. I think what happens is Paul sees Jesus on the cross and wonders, okay, if everyone but the Jews are destroyed, how is the whole world going to rejoice the way they did at the end of Nahum, the way they did in the end of chapter 52 of Isaiah? How will the whole earth see the salvation of God? Man, I lost my place. So, how will that happen? I think this is how it works. The arm of the Lord has fallen on Assyria as it has fallen on so many other nations. And at the end of time, the Lord's arm of judgment and war will fall upon all of his enemies at Armageddon. But in between those times, now, the arm of the Lord has fallen on one more individual, the Lord's servant, Jesus. This is straight out of Isaiah 52. I didn't have to go far. Isaiah 52 goes on to tell us about one whose face was marred beyond recognition. And just as the world hid their face from Nineveh in its hour of destruction, people hid their faces from him. Just as Nineveh was abandoned in their hour of need, he was deserted by his closest friends. And just as the Lord made the grave of Nineveh, Isaiah tells us, this servant's grave was made with the wicked, although he had done no violence. That's what it says. And the good news is that Isaiah 53.10 says, his soul made an offering for guilt. We are guilty, and he will not clear that guilt, but he will make an offering for that guilt. That offering has been made by Jesus and accepted, and the proof of that is the resurrection of Jesus, where he said, yes, I accept. And more than that, it goes on to say in Isaiah 53, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. We are guilty. We can't clear that guilt. God won't clear that guilt, but he will pay for it with his son. We are not righteous. We can't earn the righteousness, but he will account us as righteous. That's our hope. Paul picks up on this in Romans 10, and he quotes Nahum and Isaiah and pulls it all together for us. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he goes on and says, well, how, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul's application, he pulls this together and says, yes, destruction of Assyria, that is a shadow of the things to come But before that day comes, 
the Lord's arm will be revealed to all the nations. How? Through you, is what Paul says. You are the messenger on the mountain. I'm sending you out to bring good news to the nation. The Lord is coming with vengeance. Call upon the name of the Lord. That is how the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God in Isaiah. That is how the nations will rejoice at the end of Nahum. That is how the world will rejoice at Armageddon. In Revelations, for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. How's that going to happen? God is sending you out, all of you, to go tell the world. You are the messengers of Nahum. You have good news. Good news that evil kingdoms will not be left to their own, that God will stop them. And he is patient now to give you an opportunity to join him.